Welcome to Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. Fascinating clues to help solve some of the most pressing global challenges from climate change to feeding a growing population to curing diseases can be found in science and innovation. I'm Kate Hayes, and I'm your host of the podcast, Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. In this podcast, we get to hear from visionary scientists, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs to learn more about how the science of today may positively impact our lives in the future. We're so happy you've joined. Today, we're going to talk about something that, in one way or another, we hope will affect all of us, healthy aging. With increasing average global life expectancy, the world is now facing two new challenges. Systematically, how to manage the extra costs associated with longer-term care, and also on an individual level, how to handle the prospect of possibly spending more years in declining health, or even better, finding ways to stay healthy and active longer. As always, we've invited two extraordinary experts on this topic, Dr. Mike DeVoy and Michael Hoden. Michael Hoden is the CEO of the Global Coalition on Aging, and Dr. Mike DeVoy is Chief Medical Officer at Bayer Pharma. Thank you both so much for joining. So to start, please share with us in one sentence what is to you personally the most fascinating thing about aging. Michael, we'll start with you. Thanks, Kate. So, you know, on a personal basis, uh, it's really the ability, the opportunity to keep working, keep engaged. Uh, I'm at a point in my life where if I were living probably, you know, in the mid to late 20th century or before, or even a few years ago, I'd be what they called retired. And although I love golf and tennis and enjoy uh, vacations, the idea of the ability to keep active, keep working, keep engaged, even starting a new venture, which the Global Coalition on Aging has been over the last decade. So that's really exciting. And that's what the prospect of this new demographic shift has brought to us. And I'd like for you to explain a little bit more about the Global Coalition on Aging. What is this organization? So we formed roughly 10 or 11 years ago, and it was based on this idea that there is this global megatrend of aging, 2 billion of us on the planet by mid-century, more old than young in every single society as it modernizes, and this is true around the world, whether we're living in Europe, the United States, uh, Japan, but also Latin America, uh, Asia, both rich and poor Asia. And we have this idea that in order to achieve this goal around healthy aging, that we involve the business community. And we would work with a relatively small number of global companies, cross-sector and cross-discipline. So Bayer joining some of their pharma colleagues like Novartis, Pfizer, and Lilly, but also Intel, Philips, technology companies, Uber. Uh, Mike DeVoy and I have recently been uh, working with uh, the CEO of Uber Health. Uh, Home Instead, the global elder care company. And we wanted to bring the business voice and the business strategy to this topic of healthy aging and shift it from, oh my God, 
there's all these old people, what are we going to do about them, to this is a huge opportunity for all of us and something that the business community can contribute to in a huge way. So that's what the Global Coalition on Aging is, and I think we're executing off of that plan. Wonderful. We'll come back to that and more about Oh, my God, there are all these old people, what to do with them. Um, But first, I want to go to Mike and ask you, what to you is personally the most fascinating thing about aging? Thank you, Kate. And uh, great for me to join you and uh, Michael Hoden here today. For me, looking from the medical perspective, it's that people can enjoy a very long life expectancy and enjoy really great health in that and live uh, to a a healthy aging. But what drives me is why can we not make that possible for everyone in society so that as we live longer, all of us can go about our lives. Uh, Michael can still play golf, tennis, and uh, run the GCOA. But that's my aspiration, that we can bring that to to everyone in society as our population ages and as we approach mid-century and 2.1 billion. So what is it that can bring that essence of healthy aging to all of us as we age? Because we know at the same time, lots of chronic diseases, unfortunately, do join us as we get older. But th- there's no reason that should be the case because we see lots of examples of people who have very healthy long lifespans. Right. So when you talk about why couldn't it be possible for everyone to have a healthy long life, I would imagine, I mean, that science could make it possible. I wonder if you could help set the stage, Mike, for, you know, again, how did we end up here and what is the role that science played? If you look back 200 years ago, average life expectancy was around age 30 around the world. And then even in 1950, the global average life expectancy was only around 46. So now we're talking about age 70 on average, how did we get so far in so little time? You're absolutely right. That, you know, our life expectancy globally on average has, has doubled in not much more than 100 years. And that will lead us to this staggering number of us uh, living over 60 as we approach mid-century. And there's obviously a lot of different factors that have played into that. Some such as just better nutrition, better general health care, better education, because a lot about living longer is understanding how to live that life. And those things have contributed along with better medical care, better understanding of diseases. You talked about 1950, and it was really in the mid-late 50s we first had effective drugs for blood pressure introduced that people could take, which had a dramatic effect in terms of reducing heart disease and stroke, for example. So we've had a lot of scientific breakthroughs, a lot of improvements in healthcare that's really contributed to that. And the exciting thing, and I think one of the reasons that Michael's so uh, enthusiastic about the future is those breakthroughs, if anything, are accelerating. And also now we bring together the scientific, if you like, medical breakthroughs with the the digital, the silicon breakthroughs in terms of providing healthcare, the what we sometimes call the biorevolution. And at the same time, as I mentioned, as we get older, we have these 
what we call age-related chronic diseases, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, stroke, for example, problems with our eyes, such as age-associated macular degeneration. So a lot of the focus is about preventing and treating these chronic diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, that affects over 500 million of us at the moment and is a big burden for the individuals and their families and the healthcare system. But what I see is a lot of advances coming that mean these intractable diseases, diseases we were told just to live with, slow down, don't live your life, you you get breathless, you are disabled from a stroke, that we can intervene and, and prevent those with drugs, with adjustments to lifestyle, with digital interventions. And then as we look forward, what's very exciting is that approaches in regenerative medicine, cell and gene therapy, where we may be able to stop, reverse, cure some of these chronic conditions. That's not quite with us yet, but you know, scientists are working very actively on those sort of approaches. So we've made a lot of progress. And I think to really bring my vision of what our healthy aging should look like, it's really pulling through all these scientific innovations together with all the other aspects of living a healthy life, which is why the GSO is such a fascinating collaboration because you meet the CEO of Uber Health and you meet a colleague from uh, Philips and you meet people who are taking care of people in their homes and you have pharmaceutical companies like Bayer there. It's really an intersection of all aspects of society and medicine that really will address this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when many of us think about aging, you know, we're thinking about it from our own personal perspective like yeah i can i can live longer than my grandparents did that's that's fantastic and it's wonderful that science has brought us this far but like as you said it sounds like the next step is how to live longer without being basically in a nursing home or not able to leave your home and do much because you have all these health problems that weren't as big of a problem when people weren't living this long no. But then you think about the whole systematic effect of what to do. Like, Mike, Michael, you said, oh, my God, what do we do with all these old people? So I wonder if you can help us understand from a societal and economic point of view, what are the major challenges of an aging population? Yeah. So what we are beginning to see and clearly need to do an even better job on is a cross-society cross-discipline collaboration on uh, getting to a healthier aging. Obviously, medicine, science, and healthcare are at the center in many ways, but Mike also alluded to more knowledge, uh, more knowledge and uh, about our own healthcare and about having a healthier aging. So the engagement with uh, uh, education and training and learning uh, parts of our society and parts of our government. Uh, and a third component, which in some ways is at least as important as the healthcare component itself, are the economic and finance ministries. Because we have to get to the place where we have an understanding that there's a different set of priorities with respect to uh, how we spend our money. We have always understood the importance, and I would hope on a personal level that we continue to spend our uh, public funds and even our individual personal decisions uh, for the children, 
childhood immunization, children's education, etc. But with two billion of us on the planet over 60, the idea of spending our money on, for example, adult immunization to join childhood immunization is not only a good thing to do, but it's in our societal self-interest. Spending our money on 50, 60, and even 70-year-olds learning and training so um, we can continue to be active and contributing members of society in addition to spending our money on our three, five, eight, and 20-year-olds education. These are different kind of societal priorities that are essential in order to get to that place of not only a healthier aging, but an active aging that leads to a more vital society that is both fiscally sustainable and socially viable. So right now in the U.S., for example, the average age of retirement is around 65 or or when people think you should retire. But if you're living another 20 or 30 years, that's a long time to just be sitting around playing golf, like you said. But did policy changes have to take effect in order for it to become normal to keep working beyond that? People don't expect you to retire, that companies don't just write you off? You know, it's interesting when you refer to the iconic retirement age of 65, which uh, I think is, as we know here, but our listeners might be very interested in this, and particularly uh, so that we're uh, in a, I'm sitting here in New York, uh, Mike DeVoy, I know you're there in Berlin, and uh, Bayer is, of course, a global company, but based out of Germany. Um, This idea of 65 as a retirement age, the first time it uh, was developed was by Otto von Bismarck, in the 1880s. This is not only the last century, but two centuries ago. And he came up with that idea for different reasons. It was basically the politics of, in those days, the Prussian principality, where he essentially said, if other principalities around what became Germany join us, we will give you health and social benefits that will be uh, advantageous. Now, for everyone over 65, this is what Bismarck said and put into policy. For the three people who lived past 65 in those days, that is the 1880s, he could afford it. We have a few more people, like a couple billion, who are living past 65 today. So the first idea is to get rid of this old notion that 60 or 65 is a retirement age, and maybe just get rid of retirement entirely. So... That's a major piece. And, you know, there's a lot of government policy that can change around that, but a lot of it within our own possibilities. Every company can take the position, if they should want, to allow people to work as long and engage as they want. And, of course, it may look differently for a 70-year-old from a 30-year-old, but, of course, the last two years under COVID has taught us that Many things can change and we can move flexibly through that. So that's a critical shift. And I'm glad you raised that, Kate. Uh, It's one that can be supported by public policy changes, but it's also one that I think we have a lot in our individual capabilities, both from the standpoint of an employer and our individual views of ourselves. Uh, So that old age of 65 
you know, might have been right for Bismarck in the 1880s, but I'm not sure it's right for us here in the 21st century. Right. Um, Yeah, Mike, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Michael's really the expert in this area, but I don't live so far away from where Bismarck was when he was developing those plans. And in Germany, where I live now, the official retirement age is really only a couple of years beyond that, and many people retire earlier. So uh, that 65 has become hardwired into a a lot of, uh, as you said, Kate, uh, employer systems, uh, government social systems for retirement, but doesn't fit with where we are as a society now. But it's a pretty radical change of mindset because I think everyone is sort of used to this um, going to school, studying for a profession, working in a profession, and then retiring. And I think we need to look at it as a much more dynamic where you may have two or three careers and adjust as you go through that longer life. I think because both for our own um, own interest and growth, but also from a pure economic and financial point of view, we need to have a much more flexible um, idea of what our working lives are going to be like and how long they're going to be. But that to me is a very positive uh, thing. I think it's great for me and great for society that, you know, Michael is uh, combining some of his personal and social interests also with playing such an active role on a critical global topic like this. So I think that's really a model we should be looking for uh, as individuals in the society. But it requires a lot of things that were really deeply built into social economic systems to change, to ex- to accept that, because it's uh, something we're all going to have to work and build on to make it successful. Well, and as, as you're suggesting, Mike, it's also built into, or even hardwired into, how we think about ourselves. Mm. And uh, as, as we know, one of the four areas of this new decade of healthy aging that the World Health Organization and the UN have launched is what they refer to as ageism. Uh, you know, the idea that there's a kind of set of biases and prejudices built in as a function of age. And ageism can be seen and, and reflected in many ways, but probably the most challenging uh, cultural shift that it suggests we take is how we think of ourselves. So if people think of themselves as, I'm going to retire at 48 or 55 or 63, that will take us down one path. If people start thinking as themselves as, I want to keep engaged in whatever way, shape or form it happens, including work into my 70s or beyond, it's different. And, and as Mike alluded, uh, this idea of ageism is also reflected even in the healthcare system and how we think of ourselves. I, we were talking the other day about the example of heart failure, where some of the early symptoms of heart failure, feeling weak, feeling tired, uh, the fatigue, uh, the lack of power you have. Well, she's 72 and that's what happens when you're 72. No, she has heart failure. But it's not only the doctor or the community or the family member who might think that about a 72 or a 83-year-old and therefore conflating uh, age with a disease, but it's the individual themselves. They're feeling that way and may never even go to the doctor or when they have their checkup, they may not even talk about that. They're saying, well, you know, I'm already 78 and 
That's what happens when I get to be 78. So this ageism idea is uh, very much part of the culture, whether we're thinking about healthcare or work and retirement or education. And uh, the reason I think that it was the first project that the WHO and the UN came out with uh, earlier in the year. So, Michael, I'm wondering, since this is a global issue, obviously, if the UN and the WHO are working on it, there are many countries involved. Are there any countries that are starting to stand out as role models who are taking a really good approach to, you know, help people understand what they need to do to stay healthy longer, or even thinking about innovations that could help transform the way we care for older people? It's a great question, Kate, and, and thank you. And I would answer it in, in two ways. Um, number one, the answer is yes. And it tends to be those countries that have the largest proportion of old to young in their societies already, which is not so much a function of people living longer, but more a function of the lower birth rates. And those are countries like Japan, Singapore, uh, a number of European countries like Germany, Finland, Italy, the UK, where the proportion of old to young, because of the relatively lower birth rates that we've experienced over the last two or three decades and built into at least mid-century, leads these countries to recognize that let's say an approach through the lens of aging is essential, not just from a health or education point of view, but from an economic point of view. In Japan, which they even refer to themselves as super aging, you will have pretty close to 40% of the population over 60 in the next decade or so. Well, if you think that you can have sustainable economies in a context where 40% of the population over 60 is now retired and behaving the way that demographic did in 1980 or even 2000, uh, you know, you, you've got to have a basic change in thinking and attitude. And so you get countries like a, as I say, a Japan, China, for, for a lot of different reasons, uh, their one baby policy, then uh, that is exacerbated by the fact that they're now behaving like everyone else and having low uh, uh, rates of birth. Uh, so, yes, there are a number of countries that are at the cutting edge. Um, as, as Mike knows, uh, the European Union itself, for the first time ever, two years ago, in the formation of its EU government that is, now has a five-year period, uh, created the Commission on Aging. I mean, there's a reason for that. So there's a lot of interesting work going on in a lot of interesting places. Uh, we see great reflections of that through innovation in biomedicine, in caregiving, and in technology, because places like a Japan or a Germany or a U.S. understand that it is those innovations that would be the basis for a healthy aging and economic viability. Well, you mentioned Japan, and I have read a bit about Japan and even like the development of maybe like robotics, things to help with care of the elderly. I mean, if you think of 
40% of the population needing some sort of long-term care, um, it doesn't seem like there will be enough caregivers to do that. So do you know anything about the, the robotics or the types of innovation that they're working on? Um, Michael, we'll start with you. Uh, yes, there is a great deal. And I mean, the whole relationship of digital health, digital health technology, through robotics, through AI, through other aspects of remote patient monitoring is exploding. We've seen it, uh, as many have suggested, as a result of COVID and in many ways, the lockdowns, the use of this kind of technology that might have taken another 10 years to get there happened within six months to, you know, six to 18 months. You do see a great deal of this in Japan. Another interesting manifestation of that, uh, so in the caregiving world, we think of people health being people, which is absolutely true, and the personal touch. But there's the recognition that if we're going to meet the huge expanding demands, we have to increase the capacity to care, and that has to use technology as well as personal touch. And so one of the interesting developments in uh, 2021, uh, one of uh, Bear's colleagues at the Global Coalition on Aging, uh, Home Instead, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, in the United States, global elder caregiving company was bought by a Silicon Valley-based technology company called Honor, Honor Technology, so that they could put a high touch and high tech together. And that's going to be happening everywhere. The Japanese, as you say, are already doing that. But we're also seeing the marketplace respond to that in a very interesting way. Okay. Well, Dr. DeVoy, what do you know about some of the innovations that are taking place? Is there anything that you're reading about that really excites you? So in the the tech and robotics, it's I think for pretty obvious reasons, it, Japan is a place where that's really accelerated. So the use of um, robots to take care of people in care homes or in their own homes is amazing. And I think uh, also appreciated and um, benefiting to the uh, elderly people in those uh, situations. And uh, I'm sure we'll see that expand around the rest of the world and uh, is one practical step forward. Michael also alluded to you know what we've seen accelerated in the pandemic. So how we can use uh, telehealth, digital health to provide you know ongoing care advice to us and without having to leave home, go to the doctor. So you know, the one of the sort of phrases of the moment is bringing the care, bringing the clinical trial from the hospital to the home so that we don't have to go to the the doctor or to the clinic to get what we need. It comes to us. And that's a real intersection of technology, which is why uh, why we had the interaction with Uber Health, for example, in one of our recent um, calls. And also using digital tools to help people manage their health actively. And first in that, I mean by preventing, because a lot of the conditions we call diseases of aging are really things which can be uh, avoided and reduced if we take care. So using tools to monitor our cardiovascular health, uh, we're following good advice in terms of exercise, fitness, monitoring our uh, sleep patterns. Those things are the 
first step. And then if we do then develop more severe forms of the disease, how can we manage and uh, control? So heart failure is one where we know very well just simple things, just checking our weight every day, checking our pulse, our breathing can help warn us if we're maybe heading into a more severe situation. And nearly always intervening early is better than intervening later. And it also is very good for the healthcare system because being able to intervene and prevent that exacerbation of your heart failure when it's at a very early stage is a much more um, cost-effective as well as a much more patient-friendly approach than crashing into the emergency room and requiring two weeks in hospital and lots of medical care to recover you back to the previous situation. So technology will play a critical role in delivering my vision, which is this extra years of healthy life where we can do all the things we want to do. Uh, And I'd really pick up on what Michael said about the mindset shift that people should expect to be strong and healthy as they get older. They shouldn't be told if they go to the healthcare professional, well, you're a bit slower, but what do you expect? You're 72, 75, 85 now, because we know that if things work well, there's no reason you can't be you know, as active at that age as you were 30 years earlier. So that's part of changing also the assumptions we have about what, what life should look like as we get older. Absolutely. And I'm sure that the widespread access to information now makes that much more feasible. But I wonder, is that same information getting to people everywhere? I know all the countries we've mentioned have been developed countries so far. So what about developing countries? Can you talk about how innovations are being made available to patients with age-related diseases or even younger people, proactive, you know, preventative care in other countries um, that aren't as developed yet? So very strongly, Kate, you know, we believe that there should be access to innovation and health for all, not just health for those maybe in richer countries, but also recognizing to achieve that uh, will require a lot of effort by all the participants. So by the healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies that bring these innovations forward, the governments, the regulators, the um health technology agencies that assess these things so that we develop ways of making the cost sustainable and accessible. That should be possible because these innovations ultimately will serve society to keep people healthier, keep them out of the very expensive hospital systems around the world. But in we have to really start planning for these things now because also, as Michael will speak about, aging, we used to think as if you like something that was happening in uh, so-called Western uh, richer economies, but it's actually accelerating across the world now. So it, it really impacts on every society. And I know Michael's been working on that as well. So he, I'm sure, will uh, have some interesting ideas on that also. Well, thank you. Uh yeah, so I think there are a few foundational points uh, t- to understand that, uh, Mike DeVoy, you, you've just alluded to. Number one, the uh, explosion in 
chronic disease, or what we refer to generally as NCDs, non-communicable diseases, um, is happening all over the world, particularly related to growing old. It's an interesting reflection of how our healthcare systems look at this by calling uh, cardiovascular, cancer, Alzheimer's, uh, diabetes, etc., non-communicable. So, in other words, our, our systems, whether they're in the West or in uh, developing countries, are still in many ways based on a communicable uh, disease model, an acute system. You know, you have a, an acute event, you go to the hospital, you either get cured or you don't, and you're done. Non-communicable diseases are very, very different and obviously much more costly. Uh, heart failure is unfortunately a good example. Alzheimer's is another very good example. And the, the misunderstanding by many uh, publicly that non-communicable diseases or chronic conditions are a function of the developed world is not realizing that everyone globally has been the beneficiary of the miracle of longevity. And you have people living into 70s and 80s all over the world, across Africa, Latin America, Asia, including uh, Western Europe and the United States. So that's number one, the needs in many good ways, because it reflects the miracle of achieving longevity, uh, are much more common than they are different. Um, and then the second point, as uh, Mike DeVoy says, is the goal that we all have to scale innovations and make them available everywhere. And, and that is happening. But a way to enable that is for all collaborating partners, both in the private and public sector, and including governments, uh, whether you're in Southern Africa, Western Europe, or the United States, to think of spending on uh, health innovation uh, as an investment, not a cost. And that investment is for a healthier aging that will have not only healthcare productive payback, but economic and fiscal productive paybacks, uh, which themselves will then lead to greater uh, you know, social integration across these societies. So we have at our fingertips the possibility of great things over the next couple decades, but there are some very critical public policy reforms that are essential, not least to ensure proper investment in health innovation is supported by government public policy. Absolutely. So when we talk about health innovation, Mike, I wonder, do you keep up on, you know, what are the latest innovative approaches that are being talked about for treating chronic diseases? Will we actually be able to cure any of them in the future? Great question, Kate. And the answer is, I'm very optimistic we will. So you know, I come back to first is prevention, and that's healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, uh, taking blood pressure tablets, uh, keeping a good weight, those things matter. But also we will still suffer from these diseases. And what's exciting is what's happening in the area of what we call regenerative medicine, stem cell therapy, gene therapy, where we really see the potential to intervene in some of these conditions, such as heart failure, such as um, uh, eye disease, and reverse, potentially cure, 
And so I think we will, in the next um, years, start to see some potential innovations which will you know, be able to reverse some of these diseases and potentially cure them. So that's really coming out of all the very exciting science we see in the area of regenerative medicine, which um, has made you know, great progress in the last few years. And now we start to see the real potential of some of these advances you know, coming into the clinic and uh, becoming available to us. So it's a really exciting and fast-moving area. Absolutely, it is. What about something like chronic kidney disease? I know that's also a big issue. I mean, we've talked a little bit about diabetes. Do you see something more than dialysis or just taking insulin in the future? Sure. I think that um, chronic kidney disease affects a large number of people around the world um, and is a condition which traditionally has really uh, resulted in you know, a steady decline. And as you say, in the last decades, ultimate intervention with dialysis and for some people, eventually, if they were uh, fortunate, a kidney transplant. But we, we now start to have uh, drugs that can reduce that rate of decline, start to allow people to have a longer time where their kidneys can function well enough to keep them away from dialysis or kidney transplant. So uh, again, they're, you know, taking good care of the diabetes is a key part about um, reducing your risk of having chronic kidney disease from diabetes. But there are now a number of medicines in the clinic that can uh, reduce that risk and slow the decline. And there's a lot of research on, ongoing just because chronic kidney disease is coming with us like cardiovascular disease as our, all our populations age and as diseases like diabetes affect a lot of us as we get older. Well, I can say from a personal standpoint, I'm, you know, as someone in my mid-40s, I still, you know, I feel like maybe 20s and I have no intention of getting old soon. And I do try to stay healthy and I feel like all the information that has come our way has really educated my generation. And, you know, we're doing the same things now that we did 20 years ago, but my parents and my grandparents weren't doing at my age. So I'm wondering if I can ask both of you, what do you do to stay healthy and prevent diseases? Mike, we'll start with you. So for me, it's about um, taking care from a lifestyle point of view. So trying to eat a better diet, trying to take regular exercise, get enough sleep. Sleep is an underestimated critical health factor that doesn't just you know make you more awake in the morning, but if you don't sleep enough, you have a high risk of getting type 2 diabetes, for example. It affects how your metabolism operates. So try to get your sleep regularly. And then it's you know taking advantage of getting your health checks when recommended by the doctor, um, paying attention maybe to early signs of disease and getting things checked out. Because again, it's much easier to um, deal with something at an early stage than when it's become you know, a significant problem for you. And I think uh, looking at uh, Michael and I, I think it's also clear that um, males have been less good at doing some of these things, of, of getting proper you know, uh, interaction with the healthcare system early enough to tell them you have a small problem, we can deal with it now rather than ignoring it. So it's about um, taking 
good care of yourself in all those ways which uh, require a bit of discipline and attention. Uh, but I'm with you, Kate. I think that's the then you can expect to you know be able to continue to do the things you want to do for a lot longer. Absolutely. Michael, what about you? What do you do to stay healthy? So, you know, staying healthy is uh, on my mind a lot, particularly over the last 10 years since we've created the Global Coalition on Aging. But in addition to the points that uh, Mike DeVoy made about uh, sleep, about exercise, about diet, two of the most important things that, that I try to pay attention to personally, number one, on the prevention side. We, we know that monitoring your health, early detection, an earlier diagnosis that can lead to better treatment or better yet, even prevention is just so critical. And I, I, I would acknowledge, as Mike says, that I'm probably not as good at this as my wife or my two daughters are, but it, I, I intellectually recognize the importance and try to follow it. The second part um, and here, too, I would defer to our, our doctor here, uh, Mike DeVoy, but my understanding is the relationship between mental and emotional health and physical health is much more important than we may otherwise realize. And so, therefore, remaining active, engaged, mentally and emotionally happy, to be very blunt. I remember there was a survey, uh, uh, I think there's a survey every year, uh, of you know which countries or people in countries think of themselves as happy, and the happiest country uh, supposedly is Finland. Now it's not surprising maybe that Finland is also has one of the uh, oldest populations as a percentage of old to young on the planet. Uh, Finland, Italy, and Japan, the three probably top. So Finns know they want to remain active and engaged, and that too is another piece to make sure that my mental and emotional health is supporting a physical health. And then just hope for the best. Hope for the best. Um, but also know that, you know, science and innovation are going to help us keep improving as they already have. So I know we're coming to the end of our time. And I, I have to get back to the title of our podcast, which is Headlines of the Future. And I'd like to ask each of you what headline on healthy aging do you expect or hope to read in 2050? Uh, Dr. DeVoy, we'll start with you. So for me, it would be science cracks the code of cardiovascular disease. Nice. Yes, that would be amazing. All right, Michael, how about you? What's your headline? So mine is similar, actually. Um, the headline would be global leaders celebrate 10th anniversary of the chronic disease vaccine as Nobel Prize goes to five scientists from collaborating pharma labs. And although you didn't ask, I will, I will say that contained within that headline, hope, are a couple things. One is the, the need around this innovation for chronic diseases, NCDs. Second, vaccine is one of the more important prevention strategies. But thirdly, the recognition that some of our most brilliant, genius, and successful science is coming out of pharmaceutical labs. I remember reading an article about two months ago in one of the 
magazines that I look at, um, Commentary Magazine, which was entitled, Thank God for Big Pharma. And it was talking about the therapies, the digital technology and others that are coming out of COVID. And so contained within this is not only the hope about the success of such a uh, biomedical strategy, but that it's as likely as not to come from uh, the private pharma labs, uh, which maybe society doesn't fully appreciate. You know, that's very true. And as someone who's married to a pharma scientist, I, I think that might be my headline. Thank God for big pharma. I would love to hear society recognize and, and say that someday because it really is extraordinary, um, the work that people like you and people, you know, who are just working across this industry, thinking about these topics are doing to ensure that we all have a healthier future. So thank you. And thank you both so much for joining us. Michael Hoden, CEO of the Global Coalition on Aging, and Dr. Mike DeVoy, Chief Medical Officer at Bayer Pharmaceuticals. And thank you all for joining us once again for another episode. It's wonderful to have you along. If you want to learn more about science and innovations that help address some of our most pressing global challenges, visit bear.com, listen to our next episode, and subscribe. And if you want, share the podcast with others or leave a rating and review. Thanks again for being with us and join us for the next episode. Mm-hmm.